0: Welcome, one and all, to A History of Maryland. This is part two of episode two. Westward ho for Avalon! In part one we talked a bit about England's forays into exploration and colonization from the late 15th century through the Elizabethan era. Today we'll continue on the same subject during the reign of King James I. Though it's still going to be a rough rough ride, it's in the Jacobean era that the seeds of English colonialism will finally begin to take root. We'll touch on Jamestown and the early years of the East India Company. Then we'll return to Newfoundland, catch up with English colonial developments there, and take a breezy walk through a few slightly pointless digressions about Newfoundland's pirates and penguins. Considering James is actually Scottish and that many of the first colonists were Scottish and Welsh, I should probably be referring to it as British colonialism at this point. But either way, Sir George Calvert would be an early and consistent shareholder and investor in these ventures. By the peak of his political career, between 1621 and 1623, he would actively be using his influence in both Parliament and the Privy Council to protect his investments. And from there, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump to catch us back up to the narrative in February 1625. As you might remember, when we last left our Cape Crusader, Sir George Calvert had retired from politics, openly converted to Catholicism, and had been granted the shiny new title of Lord Baltimore all in a matter of a month or so. And as we'll see, only weeks after that, not even a month after the king had raised Calvert into the Irish peerage, James Stuart would make his final contribution to our narrative. He would die, suddenly, and kind of suspiciously. Just like that, Calvert would lose his greatest benefactor. He will have a new king to contend with, along with the same old Duke of Buckingham to contend with. And thanks in part to Buckingham's bottomless cup of foreign policy magic, Calvert's plan to colonize Newfoundland will be put on hold for two years. And he won't even make it any further than Ireland. But these years aren't going to be static. George Calvert will be hectically restructuring his personal life, orchestrating an expensive overseas colonial venture, and just trying to find a Catholic priest willing to travel to the ass end of nowhere to preach to a handful of colonists, most of whom aren't even Catholic. All of this while the political situation in England is spinning around on a tilt-a-whirl. So as usual, we got a ton of stuff to get through. So let's do this to this. Who's ready to learn some history? Ow! Ow! As I've said before, my actual knowledge of Maryland's history is pathetic. That's the reason I'm doing this. I'm teaching myself as I go. And in the last five months or so, I've learned an awful lot about a subject I thought I already had a pretty good handle on, which is English history. We're in the era of King James I, and it's a period which often tends to get lost between the Tudors on one side of his reign and the English Civil War on the other. And I think that's a shame. I'm not saying that James was a good guy, or even a particularly good king, just that the years of his reign in both Scotland and England are fascinating, dynamic, and totally underrated from the perspective of a hipster fan of history such as myself. Yeah, I saw him way back when he was James VI in a little club in Schoon. He was opening up for Nazareth. That was back before he sold out and started letting Buckingham write everything. I think that's starting to change. There's a lot of new attention being drawn to the gunpowder plot, for instance. I think it's super weird that V for Vendetta and Anonymous are probably ultimately behind that, but you know, it's a start. But there's a lot more to James. There are all the court intrigues and scandals of other periods, with the added dimension of James's alleged bisexual tendencies. Shakespeare is usually pigeonholed as Elizabethan. But James was a patron of his, and Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, and a bunch of other plays were written during James's reign. The religious tensions of the Tudor era are all still there, but now Puritanism is on the rise as a true third dynamic against the state church and Catholicism. Politically, Parliament begins to dig in its heels as a true check against royal authority, thanks mostly to James's clumsy attempts at absolutism. On the international front, there was essentially a pan-European religious war, In Ireland, the Ulster Plantations set off a chain of events that will ripple down through the centuries, and which still holds relevance to people in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland today. And none of this even touches on James' obsession with witchcraft. Seriously, if you haven't already, check out Sam Humes' podcast, The History of Witchcraft. It's a really good podcast all around, but he has four episodes just on James Stewart's reign as King James VI in Scotland. Witchcraft and Satanism was on the periphery of almost every major event in that reign, and just adds this whole new layer of weirdness and hysteria to James Stewart's years on the throne. And of course, for the official podcast history of James and his legacy, we'll all have to wait a year or so for David Crowther to reach that point in the History of England podcast. There are, however, a few aspects of those years which are fair game to any history of Maryland, the US, or North America. Because from the angle of British colonialism in the Americas, it's during his reign that those first few seed colonies successfully take hold. There is a concerted effort by James at this time to grant patents and charters to private individuals and companies to establish colonies abroad. And James's policy of peace with Spain may have allowed some breathing room for these colonies to develop. Though that probably had as much to do with Spain overextending itself militarily. Either way, let's hop back into the magical rocket ship one more time, zip back to early 1603, and once more follow the line of King James's reign and George Calvert's career from the angle of all of this colonialism. When James ascended the English throne in 1603, England had claims on much of the eastern seaboard of what would today be the United States, on paper at least. And for a time, this entire coast from Spanish Florida in the south, to New France in the north, was referred to as Virginia. It's said to have been named by Sir Walter Raleigh in honor of Elizabeth, the Virgin Queen, which is the polite thing to do, considering Elizabeth had granted Raleigh the same patent over all of it she had granted to Raleigh's half-brother, the now late, great Sir Humphrey Gilbert. It's from this patent that Raleigh would make his two failed attempts to colonize Roanoke. He'd also planned on trying to settle the Chesapeake region, but conflicts with Spain and troubles with financial backing fatally hindered those attempts. Raleigh claims to have spent north of 40,000 pounds on the Roanoke debacles. To get some sort of perspective on this, I found a simple conversion engine online. It's Eric W. Nice, Pounds Sterling to Dollars, Historical Conversion of Currency. And according to his equations, 40,000 pounds in 1587 money would be just over 10.5 million dollars today. And keep in mind, this isn't a time where there were probably only a handful of what might equate to billionaires worldwide. There just wasn't as much wealth in general to go around as there is today. The pie, regardless of the size of your slice, was just smaller. So, in short, this is a ruinous amount of money to waste on a lost colony. Which is part of the reason that we'll see joint stock companies become more of a popular model in colonial development. A joint stock company was basically a corporation with investors, and usually a charter from the king licensing them to settle, trade with the natives, exploit the resources, and mostly govern themselves. There were several upsides to this model. For one, costs were privatized, so the crown and the parliament didn't necessarily have to pony up any public money to fund the ventures. And with multiple investors, joint stock companies could potentially drum up money faster, as well as spread the risk if everything went pear-shaped, which was often. When the history of Maryland began its narrative in late 1602, Raleigh still technically held his personal patent on Virginia. But as we learned back in Part 3 of Episode 1, almost as soon as James ascended the throne, Raleigh would be getting tossed into the Tower for over a decade on treason charges. As a result, Raleigh's Virginian claims would revert back to the Crown. And within a few years, James would grant a monopoly to the Virginia Company or as I should say, companies, because the Virginia Company was originally comprised of two separate joint stock companies with the same charter, with each company granted authority over a separate portion of the North American coast. First, there was the Virginia Company of Plymouth, who were granted exclusive rights between the 41st parallel and the 45th parallel of northerly latitude, roughly New York to the border of Canada today. They technically shared rights stretching down to the 38th parallel, but they'd never make use of them. The Plymouth Company would have just one go at trying to establish a settlement on the Kennebec River, in what is today Maine. It was known as the Popham Colony, and it wouldn't go well. The 120 or so colonists would up stakes and give up after about a year. After which, the Plymouth Company patent would fold. The territories under their charter would revert back into royal hands for about 12 years. For now, it's the other Virginia company, the Virginia Company of London, which we have come to know and love as the founders of Jamestown in 1607, the first permanent English settlement in the Americas, depending on your definition of English permanent and settlement. The first wave of colonists were mostly freebooting adventurers, out to find gold in a shortcut to the markets of Asia. I mean, seriously, they were hoping they could just row up the James River and find the Pacific Ocean on the other side. They wanted to get rich quick and get out. Mostly they just starved, died of dysentery and typhoid, and pissed off the natives. With a few dashes of cannibalism thrown in there for good measure. In 1609, when George Calvert was just starting to land those first royal clerkship jobs, he would invest 25 pounds in the Virginia Company. Our handy-dandy online historical conversion engine puts that at about $5,800 today. It's doubtful that investment ever paid off for him. The early settlers at Jamestown had arrived during one of the worst droughts in centuries, and barely seemed able to produce much of anything until that eased up. And tobacco wouldn't start taking root as a cash crop until about 1614, when John Rolfe, better known as the guy who married Pocahontas, tried out a smoother, sweeter Caribbean strain of tobacco from some seeds he had smuggled out of Spanish Trinidad. Thus laying the foundation for a massive industry that would loom large in Maryland's eventual history. Despite a general increase in stability, prosperity, and population of the Virginia colony, the Virginia Company would go down. Constant internal squabbling, a massive Indian uprising in 1622 that killed over 300 settlers, and general insolvency were just some of the factors that would ultimately lead to the company's charter being revoked by the king in 1624. And I suppose this is one of the downsides of the joint stock model. Investors might drum up money but they expected a decent return to keep the whole thing humming along. So the Virginia Company nominally fell under the direct rule of the king, becoming a royal colony. At the local level, the colony would retain its representative body, the famous House of Burgesses. But overseas, James would appoint a provisional council for the management of Virginia, of which George Calvert would be a member. And some speculate that it's here. Ten years before the founding of Maryland, that Calvert might have helped sow future seeds of discord. Many of the established interests in the Virginia colony were not very fond of distant investors and the king's cronies on the Virginia Council, making ridiculous demands of them from across the ocean. And long before Maryland was even so much as a gleam in Lord Baltimore's eye, he was likely making enemies of those same Virginians, who would soon be expending a lot of time and effort trying to strangle Maryland in its crib because we'll be hearing so, so much more about Virginia throughout a history of Maryland. So let's leave them for now, and ramble on to new colonial ventures in the era of King James. One gamble which would pay off big time for Calvert would be his investment in the English East India Company. The company was founded in the last years of Elizabeth's reign, with a royally granted monopoly on any trade east of the Cape of Good Hope and west of the Straits of Magellan but it's during James's reign that the company will start making inroads in the east and returning on their investments. In 1612, company ships defeated the Portuguese at the naval battle of Swali, which led to the decline and fall of Portugal's monopoly in India. That same year, at James's behest, the company would successfully negotiate with the Mughal emperor for exclusive rights to build a factory at Surat, and the money would start rolling in. But at this point, it's still a simple trading company, it would be many years down the road before the East India Company would control half the world's commerce, and essentially own most of India. I can't seem to nail down a specific figure on how much Calvert invested in the East India Company, but it's universally described with terms such as substantial. And as for the dividends, well they'd easily be somewhere between… and… Well, all right. oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In other words, it likely made him a millionaire in today's money and this would be just one piece of his impressive portfolio. There was his thousand-pound-a-year stipend from a silk monopoly, about $244,000 a year in today's money. The 700000 to $1.4 in today's money he'd make off of selling his office. Plus whatever presents, bribes, graft, etc., he may have accumulated during his time in office. And he was steadily accruing properties. He had two manors in North Yorkshire, the manor at Danby Whisk, granted to him by James in 1616, and Kipling Hall, which Calvert would build in the early 1620s. And let's not forget his fabulous estates in Ireland, plus that London townhouse he'd sell soon after leaving court. Incidentally, Kipling Hall still has Maryland connections today. The University of Maryland has a study center built into what used to be the Manor's stables and blacksmith shop, available for its architectural students when they hop across the pond on school trips. The point of this Jacobean episode of Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous is to give you an idea of the assets Calvert had at his disposal. Because after prudently putting aside some money for his children and domestic expenses, he'd pretty much plop most of the rest of it on the roulette wheel of his very own colonial venture. A gamble he'd try to use his political power and influence to stack the deck on in his favor. And it would all start with the purchase of a plot of land in Newfoundland. We last left Newfoundland in 1583 when Sir Humphrey Gilbert had claimed it, or at least a chunk of it, for England. But he would end up at the bottom of the Atlantic a few months later, and his patent on the land around St. John's would ultimately revert back to the crown. In 1610, James granted a new charter there, to the London and Bristol Company, which we will call by its other name the Newfoundland Company, so as not to mix it up with any of the other London companies. One of the Newfoundland company's first customers was an affluent Welsh lawyer, writer, and poet named Sir William Vaughan, who in 1616 purchased much of the land around what would eventually be called the Avalon Peninsula. Vaughan could trace his ancestry back to the Princes of Powys in Wales, and seemed to have some sort of nascent sense of Welsh nationalism. He would call his colony in Newfoundland Cambriole or New Cambriole, with the idea that he'd be creating a Little Whales over the sea. Vaughn would eventually write a book called The Golden Fleece. It's a strange allegorical piece of colonial propaganda, which basically addresses the social, religious, and economic depressions occurring in Wales at the time, and then suggests colonizing Newfoundland as a solution to all of their troubles. At least that's what I think it's about. I, I tried to read The Golden Fleece, but I couldn't decipher the gibberish from The Gobbledygook. Anyway, it's with this lofty and romantic purpose that Vaughn would send his first batch of colonists to Newfoundland in 1617. They'd spend most of their time huddling in a few lightly constructed fishing shacks, trying not to freeze to death that first winter. Vaughn realized he may need the help of someone who knew the area and actually knew what they were doing. So he'd hire on a guy named Richard Whitbourne. Whitbourne was another one of these sea captains from Devon, who'd been everywhere and done everything which included commanding ships against the Spanish Armada in 1588. And he knew Newfoundland, as well as just about any Englishman, did at the time. He had been there at the ceremony where Gilbert had claimed Newfoundland in 1583. He had been there when Sir Bernard Drake, no relation to Francis, had raided Portuguese fishing fleets there in 1585. He had spent decades there as a fishing captain and he had enough general esteem and knowledge that the high court of admiralty would assign him to run a court of justice there in 1615. Vaughan would offer Whitbourne the position of governor for life, and a bid to try to save the floundering colony. The first line of business would be to move the colony to a less sucky location. Then Whitbourne would send all but six of the colonists back to Wales for being too unfit or unskilled to be of any use. And this seems to be a consistent problem in these early attempts at settlement. It's just sort of like they scoop up a couple dozen people and then throw them on the island. And I'm not really certain how voluntary any of this was for your common stock hoi polloi colonists. These things will be formalized soon with legal constructs like indentured servitude, and we'll get way more into all that. But at this earliest stage, I'm not sure there's even that lopsided contract to sign. It's almost like some landlord was just cleaning out a few of his laziest tenants and packing them off to new and exciting opportunities on some island wilderness 2,000 miles away. Either way, with Whitbourne at the reins in 1618, there may have been a little more competency and focus, but bad fortune would still hinder colonization efforts. Remember back in Part 3 of Episode 1, when Sir Walter Raleigh made his second fateful attempt to find the lost city of gold in Guyana? The one where he was not supposed to have any altercations with the Spanish, but he did anyway, and ultimately got his head cut off over it? Well, one of the ships from that expedition had deserted and turned pirate, maybe the same guys who had attacked the Spanish settlement, and they'd make their way up to Newfoundland, just in time to seize a ship that was working under Whitbourne to pay for Vaughn's colony. At this point, Vaughn realized he'd bitten off more than he can chew, and he was keen to sell off some of his land on the island. Now, piracy will be playing a part throughout the Avalon portion of our narrative, so I'd like to take a quick digression into the subject of the Newfoundland pirates of this era, before we move on to more exciting subjects like salting fish. Last podcast, we got into the sea dogs, and Queen Elizabeth's reliance on privateering as a cheap and profitable way to check Spanish imperial ambitions. Over decades, this had become a lifestyle for English seamen, and an industry in places like Devon. But when King James came along, part of his peace deal with the Spanish was that he would no longer be supplying these captains with the letters of mark and reprisal that made their sea rating legal and legitimate. Suddenly this whole privateering industry had to choose between going straight, thus toiling their lives away at sea for way less of a potential payoff, or to just keep doing what they were doing, illegally, to turn pirate and maybe hope they could finagle a pardon from their government once they've made enough to retire like kings. And this is a common feature of the history of piracy. There's always a big outbreak of it right after a war ends. For those who decide to keep raiding, Newfoundland had its advantages, at least during the warmer months. Now, it couldn't promise the potential windfall of loot and glamour that raiding in the Caribbean or Madagascar or the Mediterranean could provide, But it wasn't as much of a malaria-ridden death trap as the Caribbean, Madagascar, or the Mediterranean were, either. There are lots of little islands and coves with big tall cliffs that can hide ship's masts for escapes or surprise attacks. There were plenty of ships around. Between the fishing fleets, the merchants, and those using it as a waypoint between Europe and North American trading posts, and while the potential prizes may be more along the lines of salt and fish than gold or jewels, there was also hardly anything resembling a consistent government naval presence anywhere in the area. In the case of Newfoundland's most famous pirate, Peter Easton, well, he technically was the government naval presence in the area. At least he was a privateer commissioned by Elizabeth in 1602 to protect English interests there. But when James became king and made peace with Spain, Easton was out of a job. But Easton would just keep on trucking raiding French, Spanish, and Portuguese ships throughout the Atlantic and North Africa. By 1611, Easton was back in Newfoundland and making it at his base of operations, just as the Newfoundland Company was trying to settle the island at places like Cupper's Cove. Easton began building forts, as well as requisitioning supplies and sailing men from the English fishing fleets and camps, and at this point he commanded a fleet of about 8 to 10 ships. And while these were most likely smaller fishing vessels outfitted to be raiders, he still wielded a sort of temporal power at sea which actual national navies couldn't easily stand up to. And Easton would be referred to as an arch pirate in his own lifetime. At one point in 1611, Easton would capture our friend Richard Whitbourne and hold him hostage for 11 weeks, presumably at one of his forts at Harbor Grace or Kelly's Island. All while trying to convert Whitbourne, a well-respected and well-known captain himself, to a life of piracy. Somehow, I think in reality, Easton more likely just entertained Whitbourne for a few months at his place. Maybe over the winter. I mean, you don't say no to an invitation sent by the local arch-pirate, because that would be rude. And really, what else are you going to do in Newfoundland in 1611? It was probably the warmest and swankiest building for 2,000 miles in any direction and had the best grub and hooch you could hope for. And a guy who commands his own navy is probably an interesting cat to shoot the breeze with for a while, if slightly terrifying. And I can imagine the two getting down to brass tacks over a meal and some drinks while they discussed the future. You see, Easton wanted a pardon. He wanted to cash in his chips and settle down. Whitbourne was an upstanding fellow who might be able to go to England and engineer this deal on Easton's behalf. In return, Easton's fleet would get the heck out of Newfoundland and stop pilfering from the English interests there. However it really went down, Whitbourne did agree to sail to England on Easton's behalf and try to get him that pardon. But Easton grew tired of waiting and took off with his fleet to the Azores, where they would capture three Spanish galleons from the Silver Fleet in what might be the greatest pirate hall in history up to that point. From there, Easton is said to have headed to the Barbary Coast in North Africa to work with Muslim corsairs for a time against the Spanish, before sailing to the free ports of Savoy, or Savoie, if you parlez-vous. It was a little duchy smashed in between France, Italy, and Switzerland that had a lot of autonomy at the time. Easton would ingratiate himself with the Duke, possibly by lending him his navy, He would marry well and would be known as the Marquis of Savoy. Whether that title is real or not, I don't know. But legend has him retiring with two million pounds—that's about half a billion dollars worth today—of pirate booty before suddenly disappearing from history altogether. Just a couple years after being captured by Easton, Whitbourne would also make the acquaintance of Henry Mainwaring. Mainwaring was commissioned by the Admiralty in 1610 to hunt down Peter Easton who at that point was operating around the Bristol Channel. But once out to sea, Mainwaring himself would turn pirate. He'd eventually make his way to Newfoundland in 1614 with five or six ships, take up residence at Easton's old fort at Harbor Grace, and began raiding any foreign ships and shaking down any English ships and fishing camps for men, food, and supplies. And once again, Whitbourne would be made to stay in the pirate's company for a time along with being nudged into accompanying Mainwaring back to England at some point. Possibly when the pirate returned to accept his pardon from King James in 1616, Mainwaring would go on to become a writer, an ambassador, and a member of parliament, representing Dover during the Parliament of 1621. He'd also become a commissioned naval officer, eventually working his way up to vice-admiral. So remember, kids, crime doesn't pay. There were plenty of French pirates and privateers operating in and around Newfoundland as well. The French had their own claims on the island, dating back to the mid-1500s. New France was just to the west on mainland Canada. There was already French trading posts trading for beaver pelts all along the St. Lawrence River. And while the French weren't really having any more luck colonizing North America than the English had been having, in 1608 they had planted a small settlement called Quebec. So the French had their own presence in the region, and they'd use similar tactics to the English in regards to privateering. And since there's only one degree of separation from Richard Whitbourne to everything going on in Newfoundland at this time, you won't be surprised to learn that in 1616, he'd lose a cargo worth over $200,000 a day to the French raider, Daniel Tibolo of Rochelle. I haven't been able to find anything on Tibolo, but knowing he hails from the port of Rochelle we can be fairly certain that he was a Huguenot. It was a Huguenot stronghold, and many, if not most, French pirates and privateers were Huguenots around this time. Huguenots were French Calvinists. They were the Protestant minority in Catholic France, a place that experienced decades of on-again, off-again religious carnage throughout the late 1500s. And by the 1620s, it's all about to kick off again just in time for the Duke of Buckingham to be at the helm of English foreign policy. And true to form, Buckingham will somehow manage to get England involved on both sides of that French Civil War within a few years. A state of geopolitics that George Calvert will run smack dab into when he travels himself to Newfoundland. We'll be hearing more about that in a few episodes. But as we said before the piratical digression... It was English deserters from Raleigh's second expedition to Guyana who had seized one of Whitbourne and Vaughan's ships, in 1618. This had ultimately led to William Vaughan deciding to sell off some of his land in Newfoundland. But Whitbourne had put too much time and effort into Newfoundland. He was convinced that to live up to its full potential, England would have to get serious about developing it. And he had the skills to pay the bills. He was almost uniquely qualified in becoming a cheerleader for plantation there, and he was in a perfect position to be hired on in a managerial or advisory capacity by those with the money to invest. So he sat down and wrote a tract called A Discourse and Discovery of Newfoundland. In it, he describes the island as a veritable Eden, ripe for settlement and commerce, He tantalized prospective planters with descriptions of its natural harbors, its fertile soil crying out for the plow, its cornucopia of naturally growing fruits and herbs that are as sweet as any in England, nay, sweeter, its rich stores of timber and plentiful sources of fresh drinking water, its flocks of birds which blot out the sun, etc., etc., To give you a specific example of what I'm getting at, here's Richard Whitbourne on The Penguins of Newfoundland. These penguins are as big as geese, and fly not, for they have but a little short wing. And they multiply so infinitely upon a certain flat island that men drive them thence upon a board into their boats by hundreds at a time, as if God had made the innocency of so poor a creature to become such an admirable instrument for the sustentation of man. See, every aspect of Newfoundland is being framed as an advert. The food just walks into your mouth here. You'd be an idiot not to invest a bunch of money. Incidentally, these penguins he's referring to were the original penguin, what we now refer to as the Great Auk. And they weren't so infinite. Being so big, flightless, and easy to snatch, while simultaneously being slow breeders whose giant eggs were themselves a delicacy, well, they were wiped out by the 1850s. What we call penguins today are actually a totally different bird on the other side of the planet, but they happen to look the same to the people who were first sailing anywhere around Antarctica. So the name stuck to the penguins we know and love today, while what we used to call penguins went extinct. So that's your zoological fun fact for today. And if you're wondering why it takes me two months to finish an episode, there you go. In early 1620, Whitbourne would take his sales pitch directly to the Privy Council. He didn't manage to get any royal backing for his proposals, but he did manage to get the archbishops to disseminate his tract in churches throughout the land. And When you have a state church with compulsory attendance, that's like broadcasting it on the BBC. He was also able to stir up enough excitement within the Privy Council to find a few buyers for portions of William Vaughan's grant. Lord Falkland, would buy up Vaughan's faltering colony at Renews. And Whitbourne would go on to work for Falkland in an advisory role for years to come, eventually being knighted in 1625. The other privy councilor who would become bewitched by Whitbourne's visions of colonial Xanadu would of course be the Secretary of State, Sir George Calvert. He'd buy a section of the southeastern portion of the Avalon Peninsula in 1620, And that would involve him in a decade long effort to create a colony there. It was while we were here in 1620 that I had intended to pan away and address the other big development on the Jacobean colonization front happening over in New England, where the Plymouth Colony is being founded by a splinter group of radical separatist recusant Puritans that we all know as the Pilgrims. But that segment mutated hideously into a broader discussion about how the foundation story of Plymouth has become the de facto foundation story of America. And I began to juxtapose this with the altogether different story of the foundation of Maryland. And the whole discussion got totally out of hand and split off into its own supplementary episode as such a freakish abomination that we could only refer to it as Episode 2.2 b That one's mostly recorded and should be hot on the heels of this podcast. So instead, we'll go back to George Calvert. As you may remember, 1621 to 1624 were the hectic heights of Calvert's career. He couldn't apply himself full-time to his new pet colonial project, but he would start laying the groundwork. He hired one Captain Edward Wynne and 12 others to sail to his new colony to reconnoiter and break ground. And from his very first letter back to Calvert after arriving, Captain Wynne would paint a very optimistic picture of the prospects for successful plantation there. Beyond the fishing and the farming, there were all sorts of potential commercial opportunities Wynne would conjure. Predominant among them was salt making. And here's the idea. You're surrounded by the sea. If you make your own sea salt, you won't have to buy it. And you've just massively cut the costs of preserving the fish you catch for market in Europe. And any surplus salt you make could be traded and sold to other fishermen on the island. It was likely daydreams of these sort, of potential gold mines, that were dancing through Calvert's head, whilst he wiled away the tedious hours of sitting through the Parliament of 1621. As a messenger and representative of the king's aims in that session, Calvert was embattled and weary. But one issue in that year's parliament would spark Calvert's full attention and vitriol. A popular bill was proposed to essentially create a free fishing commons in the Americas. Suddenly, the jurisdiction and the rights of a colonial governor or proprietor over specific fishing grounds as well as the timber along the coasts were in jeopardy. Fishermen could fish where they wanted, salt where they wanted, and cut down any trees they needed for their camps anywhere. What personal incentive do you have to invest all of this money into developing property and industry when anyone else can come along and help themselves to the profits? So Calvert had an obvious dog in this fight. Like so many issues addressed at the Parliament of 1621, and really over the next 20 years of political battles, this issue would find itself becoming a pawn in the broader ideological conflict between the powers and the rights of the Parliament and the powers and the rights of the king. And Calvert would couch his opposition to the free fishing bill thusly. These new lands are the king's by right of conquest. It's by the king's authority that patents on these lands were granted to companies and colonizers. They are ultimately the king's personal possessions. So it's out of the jurisdiction of the parliament to be granting free fishing rights there in the first place. Now, Obviously, Calvert's protecting his personal economic interests here, but he's also protecting his political flank. Because this issue is way bigger than who's allowed to catch Calvert's fish. In a broader sense, it's nothing less than a fight for who will have effective political control over the burgeoning overseas empire at large. Other issues in that year's parliament were battles in the same conflict. You may remember Sir Edward Coke one of the main opposition leaders in the Parliament, targeting James and Buckingham's Lord Chancellor pick, Sir Francis Bacon. Well, he was also targeting royally granted monopolies. This opposition to monopolies wasn't really based on any economic theory like 19th century free trade ideals or 20th century antitrust ideals. This was the 17th century, and Parliament was going after monopolies to check the king's power. The king could grant monopolies, usually for a price, over certain products and trades as a way to give political favors or make his own money without having to call parliament. So by attacking the king's independent sources of income and influence, the opposition was forcing him to work with and work through parliament. The free fishing bill was just another one of these power plays, one that happened to land in Calvert's backyard. And as always, he came out firmly on the side of the king. The bill was never passed. Now, whether this was thanks specifically to Calvert's opposition or to the king throwing up his hands and breaking up the parliament, I'm not really sure. But I am sure the king nodded approvingly at Calvert's legal defense of his kingly prerogatives. In 1622, Calvert would send 24 more men and women to his budding new settlement. And he'd receive more and more glowing positive news from Captain Wynne. Every letter oozed with excitement about the great house they were building for him there, or the lovely kitchen gardens they had planted. Our beans are exceedingly good. Our peas shall go without compare, for they are in some places as high as a man of extraordinary stature, radish as big as mine arm, and so on and so on about everything. The pasture land that could feed hundreds of cattle, the abundant array of herbs and wild game, the stoutness of the timber palisade they were building for the defense of his interests there. And as for the weather, the winters there were shorter and milder than in England, and the days were longer, the nights quiet and calm. For Wynne, everything was beyond expectations. In his letters, Wynne would also ask Calvert to supply a wide range of tradesmen and materials in an ambitious attempt to have the colony self-sufficient within a year or so. He asked for gunners, millers, tailors, carpenters, masons, slaters, Lime burners, etc., 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 as well as a couple of strong maids that can brew and bake. He also asked for all the necessary materials related to these trades. They're trying to build a town in the wilderness from scratch, and mostly on Calvert's dime. So things are getting serious. And in that same year, based on these positive reports by his agent on the ground, Calvert would up the ante on his colonial gamble. He would ask for possession of the entire island of Newfoundland via a royal charter. And he'd almost get it, until he realized that such a grant would violate all the other claims already existing on the island, like Falklands or Vaughns, and it wasn't really worth the inevitable lawsuits. So in 1623, Calvert would receive his grant from the king, but restricted to the eastern half of the Avalon Peninsula. And though Calvert would work with some other investors, this grant would be very different from the corporate charters for colonies run by joint-stock companies, the ones like Virginia or Plymouth. This would be a proprietary colony. And what King James is doing here is essentially exporting feudalism, or at least a type of neo-feudalism, to his overseas possessions. There's a cluster of these type of grants in the early 1620s to try and colonize Maine, New England, and I think Bermuda changes over at some point. And now Newfoundland. And for me, this has everything to do with the brewing political conflict that the Parliament of 1621 put on display for all to see. Because it's right after that that James starts handing out grants to loyal defenders of the king's prerogative to develop colonies under hierarchical, autocratic, governmental structures that owe feudal fealty directly to him. As proprietor of his colony, Calvert had almost king-like authority there, but it's his responsibility to develop it and to defend it. And of course, he must swear fealty to the king, as well as hand over one fifth of any gold or silver found there. But you know, 20% of nothing is nothing. This feudal relationship also had weird, almost romantic, symbolic legal obligations written into their charters. For instance, Should the king ever visit Calvert's Newfoundland colony, Calvert, or his successors in perpetuity, were required to give unto their king the gift of a white horse. I'm not sure which is less likely, any king visiting Newfoundland at this point, or Calvert having a white horse lying around. But it's symbolic, and Maryland will have its own cool little feudal obligation like this, because the Maryland charter will be based heavily on this one. I'll get more into the details of proprietary colonies in episode 2.2b when I compare and contrast Maryland with Plymouth and the Pilgrims. For now, it's enough to say that Calvert had become lord of his very own fiefdom, now officially called the province of Avalon. It's kind of soupy as to who came up with the name. Avalon is a reference to Arthurian legend, the mystical island where Excalibur is forged. But it's also said to be the holy spot where Christianity first reached Britain. Most sources credit Calvert with the name, and that might be true. Calvert has a poetic side. In 1625, Father Simon Stock, the same priest who claims to have single-handedly converted Calvert to Catholicism, also claims to have helped Calvert come up with the name but Father Simon claims a lot of things and the name is already floating around years before Calvert converts or there's any recorded contact between him and Stock. In 1622, Richard Whitbourne's A Discourse and Discovery of Newfoundland was reprinted as Westward Ho for Avalon, complete with new bits praising Calvert for his work creating a plantation there. The name is probably older. Arthurian legends are ultimately Welsh, And it's just as likely that Welsh patriot, raging Protestant, writer and poet, William Vaughan gave it the name. Or maybe we're overthinking this thing. I mean, maybe Calvert was just a huge Roxy music fan. But certain coastal elites and their academic ivory towers have informed me that the album Avalon wouldn't be released for another 359 years. Oh yeah? Do you know what Calvert's settlement in the province of Avalon was called? Fairyland. F-E-R-R-Y. Explain that little coincidence with your science and your logic. There's like two people that are going to get that joke, and I just hope it was worth it. Anywho, in 1623, Calvert is at the height of his political power and influence, and he has just become proprietor of his own province. And one arena where he will not be shy about using that power and influence would be in protecting his investments. In that same year, Calvert would come to an agreement, a little business arrangement, with a known pirate named John Nutt. For a little money and the promise of a pardon, Captain Nutt agreed to lend Calvert his services in keeping the coasts of Avalon free from French raiders and competition. Calvert would use his pull in the Privy Council to get that pardon for Nutt. But Nutt would get himself into a jam after taking some ships off the coast of Ireland and Britain. Edward Conway, who you may remember was appointed by Buckingham in 1623 as Calvert's co-secretary, well, he wanted to see Nutt go down for these transgressions. So he green a plan by Sir John Elliot, the Vice Admiral of Devon, to lure Captain Nutt into port with Calvert's pardon, but then to just take him into custody anyway. But Calvert, who was at the peak of his powers at this point, informed Conway and the rest of the Council that he had no other end but to be grateful to a poor man that hath been ready to do me and my associates courtesies in a plantation which we have begun in Newfoundland, by defending us from others, which perhaps in the infancy of that work might have done us wrong. Not only did Calvert swing the Council into giving Captain Nutt the pardon. Sir John Elliot, the guy who tricked Nutt into captivity, was himself thrown in the jail for misrepresenting the pardon. I can almost see Calvert spinning around and laughing maniacally while giving machine gun middle fingers to Conway and Buckingham. I can also see how, after a few months later, when the Spanish match went kablooey and the floor went out from under Calvert, that he might suddenly feel like he had a target on his back and he might want to get the hell out of Dodge at this point. And we know the rest, right? Calvert would extricate himself from political office and openly declare his Catholicism. And the thing that blows my mind is how sudden this whole sea change in Calvert's life is. It all falls together between January and February of 1625. And for a few short weeks, you can almost feel Calvert's relief and release. In late February, he'd on up to Yorkshire to attend his homeboy Sir Thomas Wentworth's wedding. And the world's a brand new place. Calvert is publicly out and open about his faith drinking and celebrating with his Protestant friends at an Anglican wedding ceremony. He'd return to England in early March, with confetti still in his hair and that champagne hangover still piercing his brain. And he'd start mailing off letters to get the ball rolling on a long-delayed pet project. It was time to start putting his full attention into the plantation of Avalon. And the creaky gears of bureaucracy started turning over the next few weeks. He got permission to sail, and the release of a few ships to taxi a new voyage to Newfoundland, with Buckingham's stipulation that the ships would be filled with fish on their return for use by the Navy. So Calvert could still make things happen. Because while he was technically out of office, King James had still kept him on as an honorary member of the Privy Council. And King James still favored his old secretary, which makes it all the more of a hammer blow to Calvert when James suddenly died on March 27th. James had accumulated a whole rack of health problems towards the end of his life. I've read his reoccurring eggs and ailments diagnosed as malaria, dysentery, both, probably some gout thrown in there from a life of heavy drinking and eating, and probably stress. You know, it can physically destroy you in multiple ways. Plague had just broken out in London, and James had legged it with his entourage to the relative safety of the country, where he was laid low by his reoccurring symptoms. Now, James had his own team of royal doctors, who'd carefully confer with each other before taking any action. And they'd probably seen these symptoms before, and they had probably treated them before. But who needs doctors when you have George Villiers, the Duke of Buckingham? Buckingham would show up with a magical remedy, a sort of salve he'd apply to the king, unbeknownst to the doctors. And James would get worse and die in the matter of a couple of days. It took somewhere between 2.6 and 2.7 nanoseconds for accusations of poisoning to be leveled at Buckingham and at Prince Charles, who had suddenly become King Charles. You can find these accusations in Habsburg propaganda at the time. You can find them in Parliament's formal investigations of Buckingham during the 1620s. And you can find them in the formal charges levied at King Charles in 1640s. In the 1650's, James's poisoning would become just another entry in the black legend of the Stuarts, as waves of Puritan-Republican propaganda railed against the would-be restorer of the monarchy, Charles II, and they'd frame the entire history of the Stuart family as one continuous parade of debauchery, murder, incest, and heresy. James's death is starting to get new attention, too. There are at least two books about it that have come out in the last few years. They are The murder of King James I by Alistair Bellamy and Thomas Cogswell, and The King's Assassin, The Fatal Affair of George Villiers and James I by Benjamin Woolley. Unfortunately, I haven't had a chance to read either yet, but I have desperately tried to read every online summation and review and listen to every podcast interview and lecture I could find from these guys, and it's an interesting story that I want to know more about. The alleged motive by those who framed James's death as murder has to do with the sudden flip in foreign policy. After years of courting the Spanish, the Spanish match fell through, and conflict with Spain was renewed. Buckingham and Prince Charles had firmly flipped allegiances away from the Spanish party after their humiliating clandestine visit to seek the hand of the Infanta in 1623. And James seems to have reluctantly backed this move to war in the Parliament of 1624. But on the upside, he did finally get the Parliament to cough up a little money for a military expedition. James also managed to get that French match for Prince Charles in 1624. And Charles would marry Louis XIII's sister, Henrietta Maria. And part of this whole deal was that Louis would supply some troops and cash for the expedition as well as allow English troops to land in France and march through French territory in order to get to the Palatinate, the lands in Germany that his son-in-law, Frederick V, had been kicked out of by Catholic Habsburg troops. But the wheels came off of the bus as soon as it started rolling. Before heading to Germany, Louis XIII wanted James's troops to aid in relieving the Dutch town of Breda, which was under siege by the Spanish. James, almost inexplicably, still refused to directly confront the Spanish. There might be Spanish troops to fight in Germany once he gets to the Palatinate, but that conflict is technically with the Austrian Habsburgs and the Holy Roman Empire, not specifically with the Spanish Kingdom. And yeah, that seems like a pretty ridiculous distinction to make at this point. But there is a certain logic to it when you zoom out to the big picture. In the early 1620s, fires are breaking out all over Europe the French civil wars of religion start kicking back up again. After a 12-year truce, Spain and the Netherlands start slugging away at each other again in a conflict known as the Eighty Years' War. And in the Holy Roman Empire, Germany, the first phases of the Thirty Years' War are underway. And while these are ultimately political and territorial conflicts, there's a similar religious dimension to all of them that threatens to merge the conflicts together into one great inferno of total war. Between two monolithic factions. The lines are already blurring. Perhaps this is why James was trying to keep the distinctions between the 80 years war and the 30 years war clear. Perhaps he hoped to peel the Spanish Habsburgs away from the Austrian Habsburgs. In order to strengthen his negotiating hand. Perhaps the Spanish party back in England were still a powerful and loyal enough base of support to his royal prerogatives that he didn't want to alienate them. But all James accomplished by trying to walk this tightrope was to piss off King Louis, who retaliated by yanking the promised money and military support, as well as forbidding England military access to France. And this essentially blocks the English from being able to get to the Palatinate, which is the whole point of this expedition. So where the heck do we land these 7,000 English troops were sailing over to fight in Germany? Well, they landed in the Netherlands in February 1625, The very place James refused to send troops to that led to his deal with Louis being scrubbed. And it may not have mattered anyway. The troops were a hastily raised, undertrained, and undersupplied rabble. And by the sounds of it, desertion, starvation, and disease pretty much caused the army to disintegrate before they even really had an attempt to relieve the siege of Breda. It was a total diplomatic, military, and financial fiasco that would have major political ramifications back home. And weeks later, as news of the debacle is filtering back, James dies. And you can see the potential for conspiratorial motives here, right? James's ridiculous reliance on the pipe dream of peace with the Spanish has become a fatal liability. And it's time for a regime change. Because Buckingham and Charles have no hang ups about war with Spain. Or maybe you can look at it from James's viewpoint. This was the conflict he had been trying to avoid throughout his entire reign. But he had reluctantly been pushed into it. Not only by hawks in parliament, but by his own son and his own court favorite. And now look what's happened. Maybe James was planning on cutting his losses and turning back towards peace with Spain at all costs and granting all the patronage he could muster strictly towards those loyal friends of his and the Spanish party. and Maybe Buckingham had to act before he lost his place in court, or maybe his head. I'm not sure. As far as I've read, there seems to be something of a consensus that, in regard to Buckingham's involvement, that salve probably hastened James's death. Based on the symptoms, it's speculated that it might have contained Wolfsbane, and god knows what else in it. But it's also reasonably likely that Buckingham wasn't actually trying to poison James, but rather he was genuinely trying to heal him, just with some dodgy ass snake oil. And I love this assessment because it fits perfectly with my notions of Buckingham. Here I brought you this stuff, it's going to make you feel so much better. Just rub a little bit on your chest like so, and voila! (laughs) After this, I can imagine Calvert instantly realized what a great big wrench had been thrown into his plans. Everything was instantly up in the air, now that a new king had suddenly been declared. And Calvert wouldn't have long to wait to get a sense of how different things were going to be. First, no Catholics of any rank were allowed to attend James' funeral. Then Charles let loose his attack dogs on known Catholic priests and initiated a crackdown on papists across the land. And as a matter of course, Charles demanded oaths of loyalty and supremacy from everyone at his court, government, and in the Privy Council. It was the moment of truth for Calvert, and he respectfully refused. His basic point to Charles was, look, everyone knows I'm a Catholic. I can't pretend I'm not, and no one would believe me if I did. And Charles seems to have taken this well. He told Calvert he respected him for being honest about it, but Calvert was still booted out of the Privy Council. The sudden religious clampdown had taken many English Catholics by surprise. Charles had just married a Catholic Frenchwoman. The Crown had just been courting with Catholic France. And it seemed like things for Catholics in England might get better, or at least it shouldn't get any worse than when James was courting Spain. But the kerfluffle with King Louis spoiled that a bit. And at home, Charles had to pander to Protestant parliamentarians who wanted to see the king take a firmer stand against resident Catholics. In 1625, Charles was trying to call another parliament to get another lump of cash for another large military endeavor against Spain. But it was going about as well as the parliament of 1621. Despite Charles's tough-on-Catholics posturing, All of the same issues about the rights of the Parliament versus the rights of the King came bubbling to the surface. Also, the plague was ripping its way through London again, and most of the MPs were refusing to even go there to hold a Parliament. And it was probably this plague as much as anything else, which caused Calvert to pack his bags and cross over into Ireland as soon as a travel permit from the King could be obtained. It was time to get his estates and his affairs in order. It was time for full investment in his new life, and this would include a new wife. With all this regime change in the air, Calvert's first order of business for his province of Avalon would be to install a new governor, because something was going on over there which required it. It's all a bit of a mystery that we'll explore when we continue with the narrative in Part 3 of Episode 2. We'll also follow Father Simon Stock's campaign within his Carmelite order to plant Catholicism in Newfoundland. And how all this grand talk of establishing the Roman church there would collide with the reality of finding a priest willing to go. And ultimately, we'll see George Calvert attempt something truly radical, all but unheard of up to this point in regards to proprietors, patent holders and their colonies. He would travel there himself, along with his family, to live in the Eden of his creation. But on our next podcast, it's on to the Pilgrims, where we'll hack our way off the safe and well-trod path of people, places, and dates, and dabble in a bit of historiography, philosophy, and subjective critical thinking and analysis, specifically in regards to the way that the story of the Plymouth Colony's foundation has become the de facto story of America's foundation in popular culture. And we'll contrast the model of the Pilgrims that we all know and love with the altogether different English colonial model that was being attempted in Newfoundland and that would later be attempted in Maryland. I'd like to thank you all for listening to this long episode. And thank you for your patience and the kind words and reviews I've received on YouTube and on the Facebook page. i do this anyway, but it feels a lot less like a weird compulsion or mental disorder when other people enjoy it. So thank you. And a thousand pardons for not being able to be more consistent in releasing content. Just know that, however long it takes, I am working on something. In the meantime, I have a humble request on how to think about it. You see, my mind goes back to a girl I left some years ago, who told me, just hold on loosely, but don't let go. And I hope you'll live by these words. I know I do. This has been a History of Maryland... I have been Jared Books. We can currently be found on iTunes, YouTube, and Stitcher. And I hope you all have a safe and happy whatever that period is between Easter and Mother's Day. So until we meet again, rock on.